Let's just pray once more. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. Lord, we come as people who need your grace, who need day by day to hear the living word that will point us to Christ, that will sustain us in the challenges of this day and this coming week. Father, we ask that you'd give us strength and grace not only to understand these words, but that we may be able to apply them in a life-transforming way to our lives. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, if a kingdom is divided against itself, Jesus said, that kingdom cannot stand. If a, if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Now, these words are obviously true in so many spheres. Divide and conquer is the motto of those who want to demolish what's in front of them. If you want to take something down, divide and conquer. And the truth for those who are under attack is this. United we stand, divided we fall. United we stand, divided we fall. It, it is a truth about the future viability of a nation, of a political party, of a union, a company board, a government cabinet. It is the truth about a marriage, a family, and of a church. Charlotte Chapel will only be a God-glorifying church that is effective in the Great Commission if we remain united, working side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, I hope by now that you uh, have realized that one of the key purpose statements in the book of Philippians is found in chapter 1 and verse 27, which if you've opened your Bibles to page uh, 1,179, 1179, this is a key purpose statement for the whole book, page 1179, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manny, manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Now the tragic history of too many congregations is that internal conflicts Arguments, divisions have blighted fruitfulness as gospel churches. <clears throat> Do you think the devil produces phlegm? I don't know. <laughs> Certainly, the devil's work to destroy churches is far more effectively. Um, achieved as he encourages Christians to, to nurse disappointments into grudges and to encourage those grudges to grow and spread suspicion and animosity amongst God's people and then to split them apart as that goes on unhindered. Now that's far more effectively the way that the devil destroys churches than by external opposition. 
And so if we're to overcome his efforts in our congregation, then, then we need to read and understand and obey what Paul has got here in chapter 4 of this letter, which is where we've got up to today. So turn over to chapter 4. I'm going to take the time to read from verse 1 to 9. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I will ask you, loyal yoke fellow, Help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, Present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So this morning, I want us to look at three ways we can stand firm and united as a gospel-advancing church. Three ways. Number one. Standing firm with a shared gospel mind. Look back at verse 2. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Now, can you imagine the impact when these words were first read out in Philippi, that church, in that church? Can you imagine it? Can you imagine what it felt like if you were one of those two women, Yodia? And Syntyche sitting there in church. These, these women had been gospel partners with Paul. They'd served side by side with him in the spread of the gospel. But something had happened. We, we, we don't know exactly what it is. It's probably not a theological disagreement because Paul would have addressed that full on. Maybe it was some disagreement about how something should be done. I don't know. And into that disagreement... Something happens. It got escalated into maybe some personal comments. I don't know. And then real or imagined hurt had developed. And now it had got to the point where perhaps these people were, were being brought in to take sides on this conflict in the church. This is what often happens. People get an issue and then they tell other people about it and bring them in and Asked them to adjudicate, and maybe this was growing and spreading, and cracks were starting in this wonderful gospel church of Philippi. 
And no doubt, as the letter was being read that morning, as Epaphroditus brought it back from Paul, and uh, whether he read it or someone else in the church read it, it was read out. You can imagine them sitting there, and when they got to the section, chapter 2, where it said, uh, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Can you, can you not imagine uh, the women thinking to themselves, I'm so glad that she's here this morning. I hope she was listening to that. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Uh-huh. Yes. But imagine the shock when in front of the whole church they were named. The Apostle Paul personally addressed them in front of the whole church. I plead with Yodia. I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Now for Paul to do that We should be in no doubt that personal, sustained conflict between church members is a very serious matter. It dishonors the Christian message. It reflects badly on the character of the God we serve, as we read in our reading, the God of peace. It hamstrings our witness to the world as we seek to go out uh, with a message of reconciliation. Now that we experience tensions at times in our relationships is is inevitable. Only the young and naive could think differently. A bunch of sinners shoved into relationships with each other, jostling together, will surely cause friction. The important issue is this. How will we resolve our differences and tensions? This is the matter. And we can learn a few things from the way Paul handles this. First of all, do you notice he doesn't pull rank? He's an apostle. He could pull rank. He's seen the risen Lord. He he doesn't pull rank and he doesn't belittle them. He pleads with them. He's personal. He's impassioned. Now the other masterful stroke here is he doesn't take sides. He pleads with both of them. I plead with Yodia. I plead with Syntyche. And the other wise action here is he takes is he asks a third person in the church to come in, a trusted person. We don't know who this loyal yoke fellow, this true companion is, but it's obvious that they knew who it was. And he calls him to come in and to help them both to make forward progress. And sometimes we need that, don't we? Sometimes we need an independent person to come alongside to help us resolve our differences, to help us hear each other properly, and to bring a bit of biblical perspective into the matters that we face. And what's most important here is the basis by which they're called to seek agreement. They're told to agree in the Lord. It's more literally translated this way, to have the same mind in the Lord. It's the, it's the same command that was given to the whole church back in chapter 2. Uh, verse 1, he says this, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love. Do you see what he's doing? He's reminding them of the truth of the gospel. If you have any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Having the same love. Being one in spirit and purpose. Your attitude should be the same as of Christ Jesus. 
Paul doesn't weigh in on who was right, who was wrong, or who was more right and who was more wrong. Nor is this a command that calls them to agree on every single point together. We're all so different as people. We have different opinions and tastes and personalities that total agreement on all matters will never happen. It would be a very unhealthy thing, actually. That's not the way God has made us. He's made us as diverse people. But Paul pleads with them to share the same gospel-mindedness. To agree in the Lord is a personal appeal to each of these ladies to recall the gospel, to share a gospel mindset, to share the mind of Christ, whose attitudes and actions were of humble, sacrificial service. Now, when disagreement arises, we can so easily lose perspective, can't we? We're very frail people. Do you know when there's conflict and disagreement, sometimes that's by the only thing I can think about. I don't know about you. My, 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 everything gets seen through the lens of the current conflict or tension. Go to bed at night, wake up in the morning, eat my breakfast, and my mind, if it goes wandering, it comes to this one thing. Are you not like that? There is a tendency for us to become myopic. And Paul is saying, no, I want you to pull back and think about the gospel. Remember the common mind that we have in the Lord. When we're proud, we can so easily take offense when we are hurt or suspicious that someone is trying to hurt us. We can so easily assume the worst inference from an action or a gesture or a comment when we're hurt. We can assume the worst very quickly and we can rush to defend our honor or our reputation. And the easiest way, of course, to do that is to come back fighting. And we are so prone as sinful people to act in that way. It is so easy for us to be immature and manipulative. When things get really bad, then we can pull out this one. You know, I wonder if they're really Christians at all. Pull that one out. I'm sure we all have at some stage. Now, Paul's not having that, is he? These women, along with the others like Clement and the others in the team who spread the gospel with Paul, it says here in chapter 4, their names are in the book of life. Another reminder to them that their identity now is, as, is of citizens of heaven. They're enrolled in the heavenly census. Their names are in the official party list of heaven. They are invited to the party of heaven. Their names are in the book of life. And to have the same mind in the Lord is a call to remember who we are now in the Lord. Citizens of heaven united together in the amazing grace and love of Christ. See, in conflict, we need to pull back and recall the gospel now, for what reason did Christ go to the cross? Was it because I'm such a wonderful person? No. It was my sin that took Christ to the cross, wasn't it? Are, are, you, are, you, are you suggesting, are you saying that, that I'm a sinner? Well, what if they are? Is it not true? Oh, it is true. 
Yes. That's the reason for which Christ went to the cross. It was my sin. It was my rebellion. It was my selfish nature that caused his pain and suffering as he bore my curse in his body on the tree. All out of his amazing grace and love, Christ humbled, humbled himself in my place so that I could be made acceptable to a holy God so that I could know forgiveness. Now in conflict, we need to be reminded that we share this gospel mind in the Lord. When we recall the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, does it not tenderize our hearts? Does it not humble us? Is that not what Paul is doing in chapter 2? Have you experienced any encouragement from the love of Christ? Have you? Does it not tenderize our hearts? And so in context where we could imagine a slight against us, if we pull back and, and have the bigger vision of the gospel, we should really think, well, why, why would I despise this person? I, I'm just as bad a sinner. And actually, if, if, I perhaps, if I knew the experiences going on in their life, if I was experiencing the same pressures they, they were experiencing, actually my response would be far worse than what they've done or said or apparently done or said. See, a humble heart will be quick to give the best interpretation on events and not imagine the worst motive in others because we will consider them better than ourselves. Of course, you know, <laughs> that's what I would do, but they, they wouldn't do that. <laughs> They're better than me. Don't assume because you would have done it that that's what they're doing. No, they're better than you. They, Why imagine the worst? We might well have committed the fault, but they would not. There must be another explanation, something that I've not understood here, something that I've misconstrued. And even if some criticism has been made, rather than rushing to defend ourselves, we, we should humbly consider whether there is any truth in what is being said. Maybe, yes, there is correction that needs to be brought to our attitudes, our words, our life. We are, after all, sinners saved by grace. We know that we are not without fault. And knowing how much God has forgiven us in Christ, does that not give us every impetus for forgiving the lesser slights of others against us? And you see, when conflict comes and we narrow in, and this is the one reality that is fixing our whole lives and thoughts and attitudes, we need, my friends, to be reminded. We sometimes need someone to come alongside us and say, hey, remember the gospel. Remember the common mind you have in the Lord. Pull back. Think about the gospel. And to share this gospel-shaped mind, we will stand firm if we do that. We'll stand firm as a church if we're that... That sort of people. And there are practically other things that we can do. Secondly, standing firm with gospel responses in verses 4 to 7. And there are three responses here. Firstly, rejoicing in the Lord, verse 4. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. That's what he said at the beginning of chapter 3. And at the end here, he says the same thing. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. If we're going to stand firm and unite as a church, then the surprising key is to obey this command to rejoice in the Lord. Again, it's a reminder to pull back and remember the gospel, isn't it? 
to remember how glorious and wonderful the truth of the gospel is, to remember how glorious and wonderful Jesus is, to rejoice in him. It's a command. It's a choice that we can make. What are we going to do today? Well, I will rejoice in the Lord. Always. Paul, you don't know my circumstances. You don't know what my life is like. Well, where is Paul? Is he on the cruise ship, going around the Bahamas, sipping on a nice drink as the sun beats down upon him? No, he's not, is he? He's in prison. He, he doesn't know whether he's going to live or die. His circumstances were tough. And, and they know, of course, that Paul wasn't just making this up. They remember what it was like the first time he came to town, when he was thrown into the prison after being beaten. What was he and Silas doing? They were praising God in the prison. Remarkable. Paul really lived this. I want to live this way, don't you? I'm just aware so often that I don't. And that's why we need to hear the command, rejoice in the Lord always. It will help us to stand firm as a gospel-advancing church. I read somewhere and, uh, that Martin Luther, the Reformation monk, experienced depression. Now, this could be an apocryphal story, but it's a great story nevertheless. I couldn't chase it down. Maybe some church historians could chase it up for me. But he did struggle with depression. And one day, his, uh, his wife, Katharina von Bora, appeared in front of him when he was having a pretty dark mood, all in black, in mourning dress, walked into his room. And he said to her, who has died? And she replied, God. God has died. He said, what? What nonsense, woman. And she said, well, the way you're carrying on, it's as if you believe that God is dead. Well, there's a good woman, eh? Waking him up, reminding him to rejoice in the Lord. God is not dead. God is working out his purposes in the world through the gospel. We should rejoice in him. We should also respond with gentleness, it says. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now, we don't know whether each of these statements relate back to just this conflict issue. They were certainly facing conflict as a church with outside opponents. I think it it carries for both situations. But being gentle is is a strange thing to command, isn't it? You know, there's lots of superheroes out there, but there's not gentleman. We're in danger. Who shall we call for? We shall call for gentleman. It's not really a quality that we aspire to. And yet Paul says, this is what we should be known for. And in the middle of conflict, we need to be reminded of this when we're facing outside opposition from others. And as they were, the Philippians were. uh, Real provocation, perhaps. How do we tend to respond when people treat us badly? Well, the temptation is to strike back, isn't it? Hit them harder. Are we able to submit to injustice, to maltreatment, to, to even disgrace without hatred or malice, trusting God in spite of it all? Well, these are the ideas behind gentleness, and there's nothing wimpy about that. Now, what do you want to be known for? Is it for your good looks? For your wit? For your family connections? For your discipline? For your Bible reading? For your preaching? What is it you want to be known for? Well, Paul says, I want you to be known for this. For your gentleness. The ability to bear with other people and treat them kindly 
and graciously. It's a calling to become like Jesus, isn't it? Your attitude should be the same of, uh, as, as of Christ Jesus, who did not choose to exploit his position of equality with God, but actually made himself nothing, becoming human, dying the shameful death of a cross. Paul says in response to that, let your gentleness be known to all. And the reason he gives here is because the Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. Now, Paul has already pointed this out, hasn't he, back in chapter 3. Uh, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. Paul reminds them, let your gentleness be heaven to all because the Lord is near. He's coming back. This is a big incentive to be gentle and selfless. A savior is coming. You don't always have to save yourself. There is someone who's coming who will vindicate. Truth will be revealed. Justice will be done. And so respond with gentleness. Another practical thing. Praying instead of worrying. Verses 6 and 7. And this is an incredible verse for us as we live, I think, in the anxious society, don't we? 24-hour cable news. If there's not enough things to worry about in your life, why don't you worry about the whole world as well? Terrorism, swine flu. Worry, 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 worry. And we have enough worries in our life. The sales of anti-anxiety uh, pills, anti-depression pills is sky high. How should we respond when we are when we're tempted to worry, Paul says, stop it. The verse implies that they were worrying in the original language. And Paul says, stop it. Do not be anxious about anything. Now, Paul's not doubting or undermining. There may be many things that would cause us genuine anxiety. But we need to take control of our thoughts and our escalating fears. He says, stop it. Well, how do you stop it? Well, he says this, don't be anxious, but pray. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Don't panic, he says. Pray. Don't panic. Pray. Now, when was the last time that we prayed specifically and for some time about the things that are really troubling us and causing us anxiety? I think some of the problem that we have when we're anxious is we don't really know why we're anxious. We can't even sometimes piece it all together. It's a variety of things. Well, Paul invites us to lay all these things out before the Lord. And once we've laid them out there, to leave them with him. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, it says, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Lay out your specific requests. Uh, one writer put it this way, the way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. You know, we're, we're coming before God and saying, look, these things are too much for me to bear. My little mind is overwhelmed, Lord. Here they are. Here are the issues. I need your grace. I need you to be at work. Look, 
I'm just heading off now. I've got some things to do. I'll leave them with you to sort it out. Is that okay, God? And he's saying, yes. Cast your anxieties on me. And what's the promise? Verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, what exactly is this promise? Paul doesn't expect that instant answers will appear to our prayers or that they will, our problems will suddenly just disappear. And I don't even think it is a promise that all our anxious feelings will disappear. This is not like another anti-anxiety tablet. But it is a promise that our heart and mind will be garrisoned by the peace of God. It's a, it's a military picture of a detachment of soldiers guarding over a city or protecting it from attack. If you were worried about intruders in your house... How wonderful to know you've got a deployment of SAS guys around your, your, your facility. And all they're doing is taking care of you. You're going to sleep a bit better that night. Well, this is the image of God. He knows how to protect and keep us as we commit our problems to him. The God of peace will garrison our hearts and our minds. He will protect our thinking faculties and, and our whole person from an emotional angle, the whole inner life which is so vulnerable from all kinds of influences will be marvelously protected by the peace of God if we will just only stop worrying, start praying and committing it to him. And when we pray, whether we get the answer or not that we want, God's peace will stand God over us. So he says, resolve not to be anxious about anything, but learn instead to pray. Well, those are three great gospel responses that if we seek to develop them, they will help us stand firm as a church, stand firm in conflict, whether conflict within or conflict without. And lastly, verses 8 and 9, we can stand firm with daily choices, with daily choices. Verse 8, look again with me. Finally, brothers... Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Verse 8 and 9 tells us something very, something very profound about our lives what we think about we eventually practice what we think about we eventually end up doing our thinking shapes what we do we should be in no doubt about that what we spend our time dwelling on will end up profoundly shaping who we are the old computer programmers used to have this catchphrase called uh, G-I-G-O, garbage in, garbage out. Whatever you put in the software program, you get out at the end. And if, it's, if you get a Mac, it's better, but there we are. Um, and really, we shouldn't need convincing of that this week, should we? This trial of these two children in North Yorkshire, uh, brutally beating, torturing, doing horrific things to these other children, and uh, as I, I, it was hard to read the reports, wasn't it? But as I read the, the background report, what was their home life like? Well, I'm sure you observe this too. Um, a chaotic home life. Um, 
the man in the house um, often beating up their mother, uh, a home of drug abuse, a home where the kids were allowed to watch the most horrible horror movies, grotesque and violent videos over and over again. And so really we should not be surprised, should we, that if you feast your mind on those things, that you will act in a certain way. Now Jesus was very clear about this, wasn't he? Murder starts in the mind as hate. Adultery starts in the mind as lust. We will determine what we do and who we become by what we focus our thoughts on. And so if we want to stand firm as a whole church, united in the cause of the gospel, here's a profound truth. It matters every single day what each one of us is allowing our minds to think about. And, and, and what sort of models we are observing and seeking to emulate. If we're going to stand firm uh, in, a, in a world that is opposed to the gospel, if we're going to continue proclaiming the gospel in a united way, then it matters what each one of us do tomorrow. The choices that we'll make on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday about what we think about, what we allow to entertain us, what we feast on in our thoughts and about the role models that we are seeking to emulate. This has a direct bearing on whether we will stand firm as a church. It depends on the strength of each of our membership. That's, that's obvious and clear, isn't it? And so Paul urges them to focus on what is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. And it would be a challenge this week, wouldn't it, to write that verse out and put it over our computer screens or put it over our TVs, put it on our newspapers and think about this week, what are we really meditating on? What are we really thinking about? And who are we really looking to to emulate well, Paul says, well, if you've learned anything or received anything or heard anything from me or seen in me that, that, that reflect the truth of the gospel, you, you put that into practice. Follow those who are, who are going for it, who are, who are living for, for Jesus, who are living lives that are set apart. Follow those people. And as each of us commit to that, we will stand firm in the Lord by the daily choices of our minds and our actions. My friends, this is a book that calls us to gospel partnership, advancing the cause of Christ together. This is why we meet. This is what we're about. The devil will seek to disrupt us, divide us, bring disunity within us. And the price of peace is eternal Vigilance, isn't it? Let's seek his grace. Let's pray.